Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the podcast, we have a special guest, Michael DeJoseph, Senior Strategist in Vanguard's Investment Advisory Research Center, essentially a think tank within Vanguard for creating and communicating world-class investment, wealth management, and behavioral coaching best practices to financial advisors. I'm really excited to have Mike today to help our listeners understand what his group sees as important strategies for individuals to pursue in improving their finances and where advice best fits in. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Mike. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Great. How would you describe your team and its work to our listeners? Yeah, so I'm part of a new team here at Vanguard. Um, we've existed for a little over a year. Uh, as you mentioned, we're called the Investment Advisory Research Center. Uh, and we're in our business that works directly with financial advisors. So our work, uh, we like to call ourselves the advisor to the advisor. So we're helping individuals like you understand here's the different tactics and strategies and, uh, you know, just ways to think about markets, uh, financial planning, um, behavioral coaching, investment decision making, and all those things, uh, importantly, in order to drive really good outcomes for your clients, helping them meet their goals and, you know, enabling you to do all those things that you do so well. So it's a new group, as you mentioned, but the research and uh, kind of precursors to this group have existed for a while. You've been doing this for a long time. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the history of your involvement and Vanguard with this type of concept before this group. Sure. Yeah. So um, so I'm part of this. Uh, we call it a research franchise uh, coined Advisors Alpha, which, again, is kind of the value of advice, the value of what an advisor can do. Uh, the term was coined internally at Vanguard 2001. So going back over 20 years now. Um, I joined the team that originally worked on that research back in 2010, and that's kind of when we started publishing research papers and briefs and things like that on it. Um, and it's really evolved over the years, right? It was it was early on. If you think back to that period of time, a lot of the industry wasn't really doing kind of the goals-based, holistic wealth management and financial planning, um, you know, the things like your firm has been doing all along, but most of the industry hadn't moved in that direction yet. And so as that's happened, we've kind of evolved it and, um, you know, evolved with the times. And like I said, last year, we kind of put this new team together to just get a little more focused uh, on financial advisors specifically, rather than that broader picture of uh, advice. And so one of the things as you referenced that you're best known for, I think, within the advisor community is the Vanguard's Advisor Alpha concept, a paper I've read and used as a guide through its multiple versions through the years. What is Alpha generally? And then what is advisor alpha and why should it matter to an individual investor? Yeah, thanks, Sammy. That's actually a great question um, to help us kind of frame out what we mean by this advisor's alpha. So uh, if you think about alpha, traditionally, it's outperformance of an investment benchmark, right? So maybe you have S&P 500 and you have an active manager and they're trying to, to beat the S&P 500. Uh, if they do so, that difference between the benchmark and what they've achieved in investment returns would be considered alpha. And so a um, couple of things, A, it's really easy to measure, right? You have that benchmark. Uh, we're at the point now where you can 
probably measure it down to the second or even millisecond. So you always know what that is. And again, if you go back in history of advice, you know, uh, predominantly most of the industry, if you go back even 20 years ago, was really focused on that. Right? They were trying to beat the markets, produce alpha. But as it's expanded and as, you know, you're trying to help your clients meet their goals and you're trying to help save them on taxes and you're trying to drive better uh, decision making and all of those things, the issue is we don't really have a benchmark that you can compare that to, or frankly, really a great way to measure um, the outcomes on that. And so Advisors Alpha, if you go back to the first time we really published on it in 2010, was kind of introducing that qualitative framework of think about that benchmark, like I mentioned, the S&P 500. Uh, and you can beat it or not. Um, this is all of the things that your clients are able to achieve uh, had they not had an advisor or had they not been doing these strategies and tactics. And that difference is the advisor's alpha. And so we measure that relative to what we call the average experience, whether it's advised or unadvised. And we can actually look through and say, this is what the average investor is doing, right? This is uh, the average cost that the average investors uh, paying, the average investment uh, portfolio that they're building. Here's what advisors are doing, and that difference is the value. So we get to the maybe the the headline or the juice uh, quote from the paper. We believe implementing the Vanguard Advisors Alpha Framework can add up to or even exceed three percent in net returns for your clients. It's a big claim. It, it is a big claim. Um, you know, I would argue it's it's tremendously conservative in terms of. Uh, the true value that we think an advisor can add. Um, but there are, uh, there's a laundry list of caveats here too. Sure. And so for, first and foremost, um, we look at this as much more of an art than a science, right? So this isn't a uh, precise, you know, 3.00% each and every year. Um, it's also going to be bumpy. I mean, there are times, right, a really easy example, let's just take rebalancing. I mean, if the market's going up every year and you're selling stocks to rebalance back into bonds, that might not be adding to your returns of your portfolio in any given year, uh, but we know it's a risk control measure that over time will contribute to those longer term um, outcomes. The other thing here is that, you know, it's interesting, you said net returns, and I think that's a really important one too that's often lost. Um, so when we think about gross returns, it's whatever those returns are that you've earned, right? You spend a lot of time building investment portfolios, doing your research. Uh, and this isn't an active passive story, right? It's, it's, you could be using active investments. You could be using whatever, the, even if it's a super complex portfolio, um, it's actually about minimizing the gap between those gross returns, right? What, what you see on paper, what your clients will see in a prospectus versus what they actually take home in terms of their, their statement at the end of every year. And so that's through costs, uh, through taxes, and importantly, through uh, decision-making, or as we call it, behavioral coaching. So yeah, I mean, now it would be a great time to maybe walk through briefly the seven modules that make up the framework. What should investors know about improving their finances and their net return experience outside of just, let me try and pick the best investments and see what happens? Yeah, it's a great place to go. Um, so I'll start with this. So when we have our seven modules, again, we've kind of used this framework of relative to the average experience. If you were doing this, uh, instead, what would you have gotten? And so the first one we talk about is asset allocation. And that is a catch-all for portfolio construction, building investments, picking stocks, whatever that strategy may be. Um, and interestingly, and again, back why I say, I think this is a really conservative estimate of the value of the advisor. We don't even use a number for it. We just say greater than zero. 
Um, the reality is it's so personal to every investor and there's so many different ways that you can build portfolios and implement an asset allocation that there really is no average experience and, and people shouldn't be compared to the average, right? They should be compared to what is best for them. Uh, so that 3% doesn't include any value on investments. So you're right, arguably the biggest thing that we all do every day. Um, but then if we look at... Um, you know, costs, I mentioned, is a big leakage there of the, the gross first net returns. And so really simple, we're able to take the average cost of the average dollar invested in the industry and just say, if you were using low cost options instead, what would that difference be? And interestingly, that number's come down quite a bit um, over the years, which we think is a great thing. Um, you know, I think Vanguard gets a lot of credit for that, right? With the Vanguard effect of driving down costs, it's how we're built and how we're structured to do it. But the reality is what you do as an advisor and what your firm does, it's really hard to scale. And there's so much of a human element. There's so much personalization versus what we do at Vanguard, right? It doesn't cost us, if we double in size, it doesn't cost us twice as much to manage it. Um, so it kind of makes sense. Uh, then we look at taxes, right? And you can look at this in both the accumulation, meaning when you're actually saving, you know, up for a goal. For most people, that's retirement as the primary goal. Uh, we can also look at it as decumulation. And so on the accumulation side, it's picking tax efficient investments. Um, you know, something that's often underappreciated, certainly for those who don't use uh, consume advice, is this concept of asset location. And it's really thinking through what are the tax efficiencies or inefficiencies of your different investment types uh, versus the different accounts that you could put them in. And, it, and you know, as you know, it can get pretty complicated. Uh, pretty quickly. And there are some rules of thumbs, but it's, you know, trying to figure out where to put your stocks, where to put your bonds, Do you put them in your 401k or your IRA, Do you put them in your taxable registration, et cetera. And then on the flip side of that is, is in retirement or whatever you're spending a portfolio down for, if it's some other goal, it's figuring out, okay, well, where do I take the money from? And, you know, what if I want to leave a legacy behind? Does that change the, uh, change the conversation there? And so, we go through each of those in the paper as well. And they're both roughly 100 basis points. Don't quote me on the exact number. And it you know changes with tax rates and kind of what we would call initial conditions. And then that final one, this is where I spend most of my time. And I also think it's the most important. Uh, we call it behavioral coaching, right? It's just, it's just catch all for patience and diversification and uh, you know making the right decisions day in and day out, but most importantly, uh, on those episodic periods of time when the market's really volatile. And so we've, we've gone through it recently, right? We went through 2020 uh, with yep. the COVID downturn. 2022 was a really rough market, um, you know, both for clients and their advisors. And obviously GFC uh, back earlier in my career, kind of going through that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, just to, to kind of recap so far, if you're an individual investor listening and trying to take away what you should be pursuing in your own experiences, you, you need to build the right asset allocation, the right risk and return type of portfolio for your situation. You need to only pay fees where it makes sense to pay fees and costs matter. And if there is an opportunity uh, to be in a less efficient market or to you know drive down costs in a different segment of the portfolio. You have to justify the fees that that you're paying for an investment solution. Tax efficiency is important when you're building your accumulation portfolio, uh, putting certain investments in the right buckets to minimize the net after tax return. But then also 
a, a, an appropriate withdrawal strategy during retirement. So you're minimizing the tax bite on the way out. And then the big one that's uh, that, that you touched on, which is, uh, I think, um, going back to something you said earlier, really lumpy, which is the behavioral coaching. You know, as an individual investor, you need to make the right decisions. You need to avoid fear and greed. And we've seen, you know, recent examples of that, whether it's speculative stuff with crypto or it's, you know, getting out of uh, bad markets at the wrong time. You need to make sure that you have a portfolio that's set up that's not going to drive you to do that but that also that you can take the long-term perspective and not get out at the wrong time or not do something speculative at the wrong time. That's really well said. You know, we might be hiring. I might have to come, no, I don't. Uh, come see. <laughs> I, I think I've just been reading your papers for a long time. So I appreciate that. Um, how did this concept come about? Yeah. So it's an, actually an interesting story going back and um, it came about because so Vanguard, you know, is kind of known for our, what we call hybrid advice service, which is, you know, managing portfolios digital first with, with you know, a little bit of human help there, um, not really in person, more of like a virtual hybrid model. Um, but going back into the 90s, uh, Vanguard was actually providing advice to high net worth clients. Um, and it was interesting if you think through, you know, maybe your listeners are familiar, perhaps they're not. But for most of Vanguard's history, we've kind of just been known as a shop that manages big index funds. Right. And so the advisors alpha concept was was largely created because our clients uh, back at that time were basically saying, well, you know, you manage these index funds. They're really low cost. Why would I pay you to manage them for me? Right. And our, our answer was, well, you know, if you really want to achieve your goals, if you want to have, you know, a means to an end for these portfolios, not just, you know, highest return possible and, and you know, don't do anything with it, then. There's a lot more going on than just managing the portfolio itself. And so that's where the term came from. Not long after that, um, in the early 2000s, you know, our, our Vanguard is a firm. We started working with folks like yourself and your firm, uh, external financial advisors, because we saw the value that advice could bring to people. And so, you know, from there, it was kind of a natural jump of, hey, this is a concept that could you know, really help advisors tell the story. And we've almost become uh, kind of like evangelists of advice in a sense. And, and, you know, for us as a firm, whether you're with Vanguard directly or with another advisor, we want to see everybody do really well, uh, achieve their goals and, you know, kind of the rising tide lifts all boats. So this might be an unfair question to ask you, but, but I will anyway, if you don't mind. Vanguard's message can be kind of taken to the extreme of buy an index fund, don't pay for anything, you'll do fine, and uh, move on. Are you saying that that's maybe a distortion or an exaggerated version of the message? I would say, I hope that that's not the message that, um, you know, we are necessarily conveying, but I do agree. I mean, I think that's out there. I think that can be a perception. And the reality is, you know, for some people, that may be the right thing. Right, where they don't need a whole lot else, or at least for long periods of their life. I mean, if you don't have complex financial situation, if you don't have multiple account types, and you know, we have a uh, we have a group of fanatical investors. They're they're amazing. They actually come on campus every year. They're called the Bogleheads, um, named after our founder Jack Bogle. And I've I've had the privilege of interacting with them a number of times. And you know, they they have message boards and things like that. And they're extremely extremely sharp. 
uh, extremely well educated on the topics. They read all of our papers, right? And <laughs> everyone else's papers too. And they're able to do all of these things on their own because they have the time, the willingness and the ability uh, to do so. I would say that the vast majority of investors uh, do not you know, have all three of those and, and many don't have any of those three. So, you know, moving forward a little bit in terms of the utilization of a framework like this, this is research that's articulating potentially the value of an advisor if you don't have one, but also to make sure you have an advisor who is doing the things that they should be doing. That's correct. And that's a good distinction. Um, so when I mentioned that framework is relative to the average experience, uh, we don't and we, we really don't have the ability to delineate that average experience from advised and unadvised at least yeah. when we're looking at kind of the aggregate data, um, you know, the reality is we, we've, we believe that the vast majority of assets are intermediated, meaning most, most assets are advised. And so when we're comparing, you know, again, the average experience versus this, that does include a large chunk of advisors who probably aren't doing uh, the things that we talk about in the advisors alpha framework uh, as well. And that includes institutions. I should say like this is this is certainly not anything to do with intelligence or effort or any of those things. Um, we've actually seen evidence that uh, institutions may be the worst in terms of the decision making. One thing I'd like to jump to is a part of the framework that we haven't touched on, which is total return versus income investing. And I'd love for you to explain this part of the framework. A lot of investors like the concept of living off of the income of their portfolio. So the issue is in what your portfolio has to look like in order to generate that sufficient income. How does a total return withdrawal approach work instead? Should you even be concerned about this given that yields are higher now? Um, I know that's a lot that I threw out at you, but uh, you've memorized it all. So no, that's a great question. It's actually something that my team is looking at now and we're kind of revisiting, um, you know, how do we talk about this going forward, like you said, in the context of uh, today's conditions, which is rates are higher than they've been since before the financial crisis of 08, 09. Uh, I guess I'll give you some backstory, right? So if, as you know, if you go back 2006, 7, you could have a relatively balanced portfolio, say 50-50 or 60-40, and it was probably kicking off 4 or 5% in income. So by that, I mean, that if you take the, uh, the interest payments from your bonds or bond funds uh, and the dividends from your stocks or stock funds on a million dollar portfolio, that was probably kicking off 40 or $50,000. And, you know, we have this rule of thumb in the industry called the 4% rule, uh, which is just that it's a rule of thumb, but it's a good place to start. And so I think the, the psychology here is that most investors think, well, you know, for me to get to retirement, I need my X dollar portfolio times 4%. And that's going to be uh, what I can spend in retirement. Fast forward a little bit, you had a, an extended period of extraordinarily low interest rates, zero uh, for a very long period of time. And so bond funds weren't getting a whole lot. Dividend yield on stocks is historically, you know, somewhere in the two to two and a half percent range. And so that same portfolio that in 2006 was kicking off 4% might have been kicking off 2%. I think a lot of investors out there, and we did see tremendous evidence of this, um, would do what they called a, a yield-based approach. And so effectively, it's saying, well, you know, if I'm only getting two, how do I get myself four so I can live off of it? Right? And so there are a number of things you can do. Pretty much all of them involve increasing risk. 
And so whether that's right or wrong, I think a lot of it was done without eyes wide open. And so the counter strategy to that, if you will, we would call a total return approach, which uh, is based on this notion and it actually came true. Our hypothesis effectively is that over time, the total return of the portfolio is going to be roughly the same, whether you're tilting it for income or not. Maybe it's a little higher if you take a little extra risk, but it's also bumpier. Right. And so the total return approach is basically saying if you're getting 2%, spend the other 2% right out of the portfolio. Right. And, and really interesting analysis, analysis we had done. And this is on the equity side. So if we took mutual funds, right. So take the whole entire mutual fund industry, you can break them up into quintiles. So for anyone who doesn't know what a quintile is, it's basically, you know, five categories. You say from the, the highest 20% to the lowest 20% of dividend yield. And what we found is that the total return, right, meaning the return on paper for all of them was roughly the same over most periods of time, right? So if you had one that had a 4% dividend yield uh, versus one that had a 1% dividend yield, they were all going to get, let's just say, hypothetically 10%. To take it a step further, the reality is that, you know, dividends aren't free money. It's just taking money from the portfolio and giving it to you and you pay taxes on it. So it's really not all that dissimilar from just spending money out of the portfolio in the first place. And so that is what we call the total return approach. Um, we think for most people, that's probably a, a more appropriate uh, strategy. That's not to say that, you know, there aren't reasons to do some of these other strategies, whether it's extending duration, overweighting dividend stocks. Um, you know, maybe taking extra credit risk on the fixed income side, things like that, that can kind of juice the yield of the portfolio. We're certainly not saying, you know, we're big fans. We say nudge, not judge, right? We're not judging you if you do that. Um, just again, I think there were a lot of underappreciated risks in portfolios. So when you talk about taking duration and credit risk, you're talking about longer term bonds in the first instance and maybe higher yield bonds in the second when you mention that at the outset that your team is looking at this, given that yields are higher, are you thinking this part of the framework will be revisited or what you just said, the conclusion that I still think people would be better off with a total return approach is where you're going to land at? Yeah. So it's interesting. We're going to approach it the same way, which is basically here's the things that we are seeing people do today, given where we're at. Right. So 10 years ago, it's extending the yield of the portfolio. Today, um, it's things predominantly what we would call shortening duration with short-term interest rates really high uh, and often higher over certain periods of time than longer-term interest rates. I think what we're seeing is the exact opposite. So effectively, though, the, the principle here is that people are reacting in the markets based on what's happening today to line up with you know, what seems to make sense on paper today. Again, similarly, there are underappreciated risks. So the big one um, in today's world is what we would call reinvestment risk. Mm -hmm. So it may make sense to sell a longer term bond fund or a longer term bond to buy something that's shorter term. Let's just say you're buying a two-year bond fund at four or 5%. That sounds super, uh, you know, attractive given we just lived through 12 years of basically zero, right? And so it's, yep. you know, it feels like, feels like a gift. But the reality is, A, uh, markets are really efficient at pricing in what's going to happen in the future. And B, uh, it's notoriously difficult to predict any of this, but it's really, really difficult. And as an industry, we have a really poor track record of predicting what's going to happen with interest rates. And so there's a risk, you know, and this goes both ways. Rates could 
certainly go higher from here. I think the consensus is that they would come down from here. And so let's just say that two-year bond fund is, again, just totally hypothetical numbers here. Let's say it's 5%, uh, but two years from now, that interest rate is you know maybe 2 or 3%. So you're not actually going to get that 5% for a long period of time. You're actually going to get some sort of average based on what it is today and what it's going to be in the future. Versus if you had just kind of stayed invested in a, you know, a more diversified, I don't, I don't use the term long-term to mean long-term bonds, but something with a longer, you know, more diversified uh, portfolio, you might get something closer to like four or 5% over time. And so it's really just uh, for us, I almost look at it as a table. It's like, here's the different things you could do. Here's the pros and cons. Here's the economic environment in which that would pay off. And if you're going to do these things, just kind of eyes wide open think through the different risks. That said, we would still totally advocate for a total return approach. I think a lot of uh, a lot of this total return versus income terminology was really unique to a world in which the portfolio yield was lower than kind of the spending rate in retirement. So as someone who's heading into retirement, the main kind of point of analysis for them as to whether they can afford to retire or not shouldn't be how much income I can get from my portfolio, but whether my withdrawal rate is sustainable. And you you touched on the 4% rule. Has your group done any work on the kind of sustainable withdrawal rates that people should be targeting in retirement? We have. And so we have a piece um, which is actually in the process of being refreshed right now. Uh, we call it from assets to income. So it's literally, how do you turn your assets into income? Uh, and in that, we look at both spending rates and spending strategies. And so, um, you know, kind of taking a step back on the spending strategy. So we look at it as a spectrum. And on one end of that spectrum is what we would call the percent of portfolio rule, which, again, let's just say hypothetically, you have a million dollars. Percent of portfolio would say, well, you take your 4% and you spend 4% of that portfolio every single year regardless of what the value of the portfolio is. That's not actually um, what the 4% rule of thumb refers to. Right. Right, which is can be a common misnomer um, amongst investors and, and even professionals. On the other end of that spectrum, right, so if you have to spend a percentage of that portfolio every year, no matter what it is, the other end of that spectrum would be called the dollar plus inflation rule. And this is actually what the 4% uh, rule of thumb refers to. Uh, historically, which is take 4% in year one, and then increase that number by inflation every year, regardless of what the portfolio looks like. Either one of those ends of the spectrum may be right for certain people. If you have an enormous amount of flexibility, and you can stomach the volatility and the variability that would come with your retirement income each year by just making it perfectly sensitive to your portfolio, great. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, if if you can't uh, you know, handle or you can't afford or for whatever reason, you can't have any variability in the income whatsoever, then maybe that other, you know, the 4% dollar plus inflation type strategy works for you. We've developed a strategy called dynamic spending, which is a hybrid of the two. Okay. It's effectively, uh, you know, in a nutshell, it's really kind of looking at a percentage of the portfolio each year, but within a corridor. And your willingness or ability to accept variability in the income each year determines how wide that corridor is. And it's interesting because at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is a slight decrease in inflation-adjusted spending in market downturns. And we found that the value of doing that 
Um, I'll just throw some numbers out here. Uh, it kind of changes on the different time horizons and portfolios, but it's probably worth about a 1% increase in the sustainable withdrawal rate. So if you're kind of mentally framing around 4% a year, it's probably allows you to get closer to 5% a year uh, sustainably. What's in the trade-off, of, Mike? How do, you, how do you get that extra percent? Yeah, the trade-off is going to be letting it float with the market a little bit, uh, particularly in downturns. Okay. And so when we do this analysis, our base case here is, and we call that corridor, the ceiling and floor. So it's basically saying, how much do you want to let your spending increase in a good year? And how much are you able to or willing to decrease it in a bad year? And we do okay. 5%, 2.5%. Oh, wow. Kind of okay. based on the based on the behavioral finance concept of the you know the loss hurts twice as much as the win, and so again increase it five percent in a really good year or less. If portfolio is up less than five percent, you're not going to increase it the full five. In terms of financial planning, if we kind of run a Monte Carlo simulation, and so for your listeners, that's you know if you have a uh, let's say your goal is to retire and you have some percentage probability of being able to reach that or not, let's just say. You know, you do your financial plan and, and you have an 85% chance of retiring. We have found that the strategy of letting the spending float, so this dynamic spending strategy, is worth roughly a 30% absolute increase in your ability to reach that retirement goal. You know, there are some other trade-offs. So again, the, with the dollar plus inflation strategy, because it's completely insensitive to the market. Um, you could end up with a really huge portfolio at the end of retirement that you didn't really need or want. And maybe that's a good thing because you want to, you know, leave it as a legacy. If you don't make adjustments and you, you know, you have poor luck, I'm sure you've seen the analysis where, you know, probably the biggest uh, driver of retirement success is just going to be the market returns early on in retirement. Unfortunately, Uh, you could, what you call spend yourself off a cliff. If you're not actually adjusting that spending. So that is, you said in assets to income or from assets to income, a, a, a piece that you guys are currently working on and refreshing. Thanks. I really appreciate that, Mike. I know we don't have you for an infinite amount of time. So if people are to take away one thing from your team's research and our conversation today, what would you want that to be? That's a great question. I would, I would say in one sense, right, we talked about a lot of different things, and some of these are really complex. I think most investors would be well served to just understand that there is a lot of complexity uh, in investments and in uh, kind of broadening. Again, I think I mentioned it earlier, like the means to the end, not just the end itself, right? So the, the portfolio is the means to the end. We should focus on what that end is, which is reaching our goals um, you know, achieving our objectives, fulfilling our values, all of those things. And it's really difficult to do uh, on your own. So we're big believers in the value of advice. And we think there's just tremendous value working with a really good financial advisor or a really good firm uh, that provides advice. So that that's what I, unless, you know, unless you have the time to sit down and read all these things and you have the you know, the courage to make the decisions uh, and live with the results, we think most people should probably be working with an advisor. In wrapping up, Mike, the name of our podcast is Wealthy Behavior. What's one piece of advice you would give to our listeners in order to practice something that would improve their finances over time? That's an interesting question. And I'm going to give you one. It might sound tongue in cheek, but I mean this. I would say try less hard. 
what I what I mean by that is our our evidence and research that we look at, is particularly as we talked about decision making and investor behaviors, certainly not an intelligence story. But what we found is that the you know the harder you try, the more research you do, the more charts you look at, the more you look at past performance and try to you know extrapolate what's going to happen in the future. Uh, we end up tying ourselves in knots and you know, investing is probably the one realm of decision-making that we've found in all of human life that is so counterintuitive that the things that work so well everywhere else, right? Trying harder, doing more research actually produces poor results rather than better results. So um, that would be my advice. Bye, Lessard. I like that. Uh, Thank you for sharing. I appreciate your time today, Mike. Thank you very much for your insights. And I'm sure our listeners will find it extremely valuable. Thank you for coming on Wealthy Behavior. Thank you so much for having me. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's newly released ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Today is a great day to learn how to build your next million. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.